passion that we would hang our futures on the future of what God has for his people. And one of the reasons that I mentioned that this morning is I just wanted to take a few moments to give you a bit of a glimpse in our local missions minute. Uh, we have a local missions initiative here at Victory Life Church where we are looking to meet the needs of the community around us uh, materially, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And uh, three of the main programs that we are engaged in at present are meant to impact the community directly surrounding us and on Wyoka Lake Road where there are so many families in transition. Wanted to give you an update because you need to be in the know because you go here. Uh, first off, Celebrate Recovery, CR as it's known, is getting off the ground with our leadership team right now. We're going to have the opportunity starting in the middle of the fall to invite people into these doors who are dealing with all types of hurts, hang-ups, and habits, all types of dependencies. And uh, we recognize as we began to engage in local missions in the past uh, few years that there is a lack of an ability to meet people on the level of dependency. And so we right now are working to create a Celebrate Recovery group, which if many of you are familiar with the 12-step programs that are available, uh, make sure that the 12-step program is available to folks, but in a way that really exemplifies our need of Jesus Christ. Uh, to make that those changes possible. And so each one of us came to the faith with hurts, hang-ups, and habits, didn't we? And some of us are healed of those, will be healed of those, and are being healed of those. And uh, Celebrate Recovery is going to be a wonderful way when we meet people who go, you know what, if I walked into church, the place might collapse. Have you ever heard that from a friend you invited to church? Celebrate Recovery is a great way to say, no, uh, Jesus Christ has made it so it won't collapse on any of us. And uh, we want to make sure that you can come and you can begin to work on that thing that's so pressing in your life that you might not see your spiritual need as first, you might see your dependency as first, uh, but we want to minister to both those needs. So CR is getting started under the leadership of one of our elders, Travis White. We also are going to be starting an after-school program over on Wyoga Lake Road for the kids who get off the bus and mom or dad is still at work and doesn't have any type of supervision. When we met with the leaders over on Wyoga Lake, they said, this is a felt need. We have kids who are coming off the bus, and they have no supervision for a number of hours. And so our children's pastor, Pastor Spring, is putting together a team right now to step into that need and to begin tutoring and to begin to shed Christ's light on some of the lives of those kids over in that area. And so I just encourage you, if you have an availability and a heart for kids and you have an availability in late afternoon, we would love to have you talk to Pastor Spring to see if you might be a fit on that team. And then finally, we are beginning a program here at Victory Life that we hope to do uh, from this point forward called Faith and Finances. And one of the, another one of the felt needs from the communities uh, that we are working in right now is that people do not have basic uh, financial skills. And as I was talking to some of uh, our folks who we met through Pastor CJ, they said, you know what, Pastor Matt, no one's going to make changes unless they meet the one who can make the change in them. And we said, so what are you saying? And they said, listen, we can't just take financial coaching and help to folks. We need to take Jesus Christ to them as well. And Faith and Finances is a tremendous program. Uh, it is just, we, it is piloting throughout the United States right now. And it is based not in the concept that Christians can come and fix communities. Uh, Christians have been coming and trying to fix communities for 2,000 years. Uh, we can't do that. But what we can do is get into a community and begin to show love and show care and show interest. And bring along with us the knowledge base and the gifts that God's given us. And of course bring along 
relationship with Jesus Christ with us. So faith and finances is getting off the ground. In fact, our pilot group is going to begin to meet regularly in September to pilot through the program so we can then take faith and finances to our local mission field. And so if you have an interest in uh, faith and finances and want to know a little bit more, I'd love for you to talk to me. You can talk to Pastor CJ. You can talk with Jim Kushner or Conrad Baker. Uh, you can talk with Tom Corey. You can talk with Stephen Lively. There's a number of folks who are already in this discussion to make sure that we can take faith and finances into communities around us for years to come. And so I just wanted to share with you what we're doing behind the scenes because if you're not behind the scenes, you don't see it. And uh, it's important that you know that we're a church that's very active on local missions. We're looking to transform communities with the hope and life that's found in the name of Jesus Christ while meeting the material and emotional and spiritual needs of the people uh, that we come in contact with. So those are some of the things that we're engaged in right now. And if you have an interest in partnering with us, becoming part of those programs, you can always talk to one of us pastors, one of the elders, or one of the people that I just mentioned. Turn in your Bibles today, if you will to the book of John, the very first chapter. We just finished a nine-week study called Repossessed, Godly Wisdom for Reestablishing Joy in Your Home. I wanted to take the month of July to slow down and to focus a little bit on our local missions initiatives. And uh, I was all set to begin a study in Ecclesiastes, and uh, we'll be doing that coming up in the fall, but I really felt pressed to slow down and to spend a few weeks talking about uh, our vision and our hopes and uh, what we believe is God's model for how we impact communities with the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe that it all starts here in John chapter 1. Uh, we get a glimpse and a picture into the model that Christ would have us use when we are interested in reaching communities for him. We're going to start today in verse 14. I'll be reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, and uh, for those of you who go, why does he use an obscure version like that? Where's the NIV? Where's the King James? I use that because the NRSV uh, really translates word for word from the Greek, which is the original language uh, that the Bible was, or the New Testament was written in. So I, uh, sometimes the King James or the NIV sort of gives you the concept, but it's nice to, to be able to get to the actual word because some of these words have vast importance. And this is a particular passage where you'll see the actual words that the Apostle John uses are of vast importance. We're going to talk about three of the words here in the first sentence uh, for the majority of the message today. And those words in that first sentence that we'll be focusing on are word, the word, word, flesh, and lived among us. Are you in John chapter 1? All right, let's read 14 and following. And I'm going to skip over verse 15. In your Bibles, there's a parenthesis in it, and it turns us back to talking about John the Baptist. And so we're going to skip that parenthetical note and go from 14 to 16. It says this, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. I told you I wanted to start with the word word. So John, if you back up to verse 14 and just leave that up on the screen for the folks today, that would be helpful. I wanted to focus on the word word for a minute because we just say that's a word. 
But the word that's being used here in the Greek is logos or logos. And that was a loaded term in the Greek world. Now you say, I thought that the biblical writers, I thought they were Jewish. Why are they writing in Greek? Well, they're writing in Greek because Alexander the Great had come and conquered the known world 300 years earlier. And Greek was the lingua franca. It was the language of the people. So if they wanted to spread the message about Jesus, they weren't going to write in Aramaic or Hebrew. They needed to write in Greek so the majority of people could read the Bible. And so John writes in Greek, but what John does to try to interest a Greek audience is use a concept that would have been known by them by talking about the word, the logos or the logos. The logos was something that the Greek philosophers had coined. It was a term especially used among the Stoics, if you know that line of Greek philosophy from humanities class. And the Stoics said that the logos was the divine rationale and the divine plan. The mind of God or the mind of the creator or the reason behind the universe and the plan for the universe. That's the logos. And so when John is writing this, he is writing into that understanding that the word is the eternal rationale and the eternal plan for the universe. Now, you might say, okay, so the Greek philosophers knew that, right? Did the average person understand what the logos was or the logos was? And the answer is probably no. I could look at you this morning and say something like, nuclear fission really changed the world. And you'd go, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, it did. Nuclear fission changed the world. And then if I pressed you and said, and what exactly does that mean? You'd say, hmm, bombs? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." You wouldn't know much about that. You just know that nuclear fission changed the world, right? And so the average Greek person at this point, because of the history of philosophy, what about a concept that the Logos was the divine mind, but would they have really known the philosophy behind it? No. So John's not just writing to philosophers, he's writing to everybody who would have at least have known that the Logos was important. It was a big deal, it was a big concept. Now what did John say about the the Logos or the word so far? Well, up in verse 1 he says, some of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what's John claiming? Well, he's claiming that the word's been around forever, which the philosophers would have gone, mm-hmm, right, good, John, good, good. Word's been around. The divine rationale set this whole thing in motion. Good. And then he said, and the word was God. And that would have piqued the philosopher's interest. Oh, the word was God. So God cannot be divorced from his rationale. Brilliant, John. We like where you're going so far. He goes on a little bit later and he says, and the word was the light of men. And the philosophers would have said, oh, John, that's brilliant. That's right. Men are living in darkness. They can't see for themselves. They need the divine mind for salvation. They need to know what God intends for them and what God wants for them. Everybody sort of agree with that, by the way, that the light is to know what God wants out of your life and for your life and through your life. So the philosophers would have loved that. Oh, yes, yes, the Logos is the divine light of men. Good, John, good. And then John drops it on us in verse 14 that we just read. And the word became flesh. Whatever do you mean, John? The word became flesh. The word took on corporality. Now, he could have used some other words. He could have said the word became human. That might have been okay. 
He could have said the word took on a soma, a body, but he didn't. He said the word took on flesh, skin, and all the ramifications thereof. That the divine mind and the divine rationale didn't just stay up in heaven going, plan work, plan work, plan work, but actually became human and took on human frailty. And then John goes for the home run. He doesn't doesn't try for a seeing eye single here. He says, oh, by the way, the word took on flesh. He lived among us. And if you skip down to 17 and 18, the word is Jesus. The divine mind, the divine rationale, the light of men, the way that people can be lifted out of their circumstances and live with purpose and hope in a future, that is Jesus. That's a person. That's somebody. You know, the reason that John uses logos here, as best we can understand, the reason that he used a Greek concept to introduce a Jewish savior can only be stated in my mind as this. The Greek folks who were reading this book believed that that which ailed humanity was their lack of comprehension of God's mind. They didn't know what God wanted. They didn't know who God was. They couldn't see any plan from God for their lives. And therefore, the thing that the philosophers wanted to attain was the logos And John says to them in a moment, the Logos has embodied himself in Jesus Christ. The divine light of the world has become a human being wearing deteriorating fallen flesh. Not a body, not a human, because a lot of the early heresies said that Jesus only seemed to come. He was only a spirit looking like he was in a body. It's called Gnosticism. Look it up if you care to. He says, no, he was in flesh. He wasn't immune to sickness. He was sinned against. People hurt his feelings. He was lied about. He had headaches. He had tummy aches. He stubbed his toe. The eternal mind of God took on humanity, took on humanity. So we talked about word and we talked about flesh, and then it says, and he lived among us. He came down to our level. There's an old gospel song, none of you know it, but I do. Well, maybe three of you know it. Don't clap if you know it. But it says, he came down to my level because I couldn't get up to his. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. He came down to the level of humanity because we couldn't attain to his. And this next section is going to put that in, in a fine point for us. It says that he lived among us, dwelt among us. The actual word means that he built a tent here. Now you say, why would John say that? Why wouldn't he just use Zoe for live? But I want to tell you, John was using language very smartly here because he's now going to appeal to his Jewish audience. Those who are Greek but who are Jewish by birth and living all over the Greek world. And he says, in essence, literally, Jesus tabernacled among us. That's what it says in the Greek. 
How many of you remember the tabernacle from the Old Testament, right? Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt. They come through the Red Sea. They go and receive the commandments of God at Mount Sinai. And then God says, I want you to build me a dwelling place. A place where I will meet with you and be in the midst of you. And my spirit will teach you and lead you and guide you through Moses. I want you to build me a tabernacle. And of course the tabernacle becomes the temple. And the spirit of God that emanates from there is where people meet with the Lord in the Old Testament. It's the place where God said he would dwell with his people. The interesting thing about that is, and what's taking place here in John chapter 1, is that all of a sudden he says, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And we know that when the tabernacle was built, the glory of the Lord came down so that the people could not even stand in the midst of the tabernacle, stand in the midst of the temple, because God's glorious presence was there so strong. The Hebrew word for that is the Shekinah glory. You know what Shekinah means? To dwell with. To dwell with. There's two words for glory in the Hebrew, one is Shekinah, which means to dwell with, and one is kabod, which means splendor or majesty or brightness. So John is using these play on words as he talks about Jesus tabernacling among us, and then he dwells in flesh, and somehow through the flesh of Jesus Christ, the glory of God has been seen. The Shekinah, the kabod, both of them, somehow through this fallen flesh, with the second person of the Trinity inside, we have seen the glory of God in the same way that the ancient Israelites saw it descend upon the tabernacle and the temple. John was sort of an interesting writer, wasn't he? That he could appeal to the Greek and Jewish audiences and imbue so much power and so much strength and so much might into the event that was Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile can read this and go, wow, he is making some massive claims about who Jesus is. But in the midst of these massive claims, let us not miss the primary claim. And the primary claim is very simple. God's meeting place with men and women is no longer a temple of wood and stone, but a body of flesh and blood. That's the difference. Does anybody know the $5 theological word for this entire event? It's called the incarnation. The fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among us because God had to do something that could only be done if he came in the flesh. And it brings to mind a question, and the question is this. Why did God do it this way? Why did he need to introduce the grace and truth, the logos, the divine mind, into humanity by taking on flesh? Why didn't he just bust out of heaven in all of his glory and say, this is God, kneel? Why didn't he? Why didn't God just bust out the sky and go, kneel? Now listen, this is what I think. 
Why didn't he? The reason that God did not do that goes back to the very reason that we were created. We were created to bring glory to God. And we were created to be brought into loving relationship with God. And you can't be brought into loving relationship by coercion. You can't be made to love somebody. You can't be coerced into giving God glory. If God's going to receive the maximum glory from creating you and creating me, we must choose to trust, obey, and love him. So if he busts out the sky and says, Neil, what choice do any of us have? And what glory does he derive from that? Any tyrant can coerce somebody into kneeling. God has brought glory because he desires to love humans into kneeling. Love humans into kneeling. There's a great saint of the early church. I guess you could call him a church father. His name's Athanasius. He wanted to answer this question. Why did God's intentions and purpose and hope for humanity have to come in a person? Why didn't God just bust out the sky in glory and say, listen, humans? Athanasius put it this way, and I'm just going to invite you to engage in something with me that's really dangerous for a Sunday morning. Close your eyes. Oh, I know. Oh, boy. How many cups of coffee did you have? I just want you to listen to this quote because it's sort of heady language, but it's so strong. This is what Athanasius of Alexandria said. He said, the Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and teach suffering men. If he had wanted to make a display, the thing to do would have been to just appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to, d- the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested according as they could bear so as to not undermine the value of the divine message by appearing in a way that would exceed their capacity to receive it. You can open your eyes. He appeared in a way that would match our capacity to receive him. Not so that we could go, whoa, and fall down before him. Too much for us to bear. But instead that he came to heal and to teach and to bring life to you and I. And therefore he came in the very way that we could receive him. You don't give a thirsty child a drink by spraying him in the face with a fire hose. If God had busted out of heaven, boom, and we definitely would have paid the price. Instead, he came in a way to ensure us of his love and his care for each one of us. He didn't come to dazzle us. He didn't come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men and women. How do you give a child a drink? You know, a toddler. You get an appropriately sized cup. You fill it with an appropriate amount of water that's not filled to the brim so they spill it everywhere. And you guide it into their hands until they can hold it with both their hands. 
That's how you give a child a drink of water. That's the love that God has for human beings. God could have easily turned on the fire hose on us. But he chose to meet us at our level and hand us a drink exactly where we were at. One more thought about why God did it this way. And it's simple. The unincarnate truth is powerless. Unless God becomes flesh to bring his message, it's without power. You said, where do you get that concept? Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God had declared purpose and truth and life. It was called the law. He had declared his mind. He'd let us know what he was thinking. What had human beings done with it? Nothing good. You've read the Old Testament. We couldn't keep the commandments that are found in the law. We couldn't live according to the way that God was calling us to live. And he recognized that. And he sent his son. Because if the incarnate truth is powerless, the incarnate truth is powerful. And that's who Jesus is. He's not just the truth. He's not just an opinion. He's a person. Why do people come to Christ? Do people come to Christ because... Somebody debated with them in order to come to Christ and convince them of their foolishness in their present way of living. No. For 2,000 years, men and women have been coming to Christ and putting their faith in him and believing that he could change their lives because God touches their hearts. The incarnate Jesus convinces men and women in their spiritual man and their spiritual woman that God loves them, and God wants them to know his mind and his heart and his future for them. That's why people come to Jesus. They don't come to Jesus based in some, somebody blabbing the truth. Jesus came to heal and to teach and to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. He got down in the mud, and he dwelled these concepts of who Jesus was and who Jesus is should inform us of what we call ministry. Who Jesus was, what he did, and why he did it should inform us of how we, quote, unquote, reach the lost. He came down to the level of people and gave them a drink of water rather than squirting them with the fire hose of truth and saying, receive it, receive it, receive it. What does this tell us about how we should conceive of ministry as the church of Jesus Christ? Well, first we must understand that the background of we have the truth, so shut up and listen, must be dismissed. 
Isn't that the way that we have operated for so long as American Christians? We have the truth. Shut up and listen. I'm going to write my op-ed this week, and that's really going to get those heathens. I'm going to hop on Fox News and be a talking head, and that's really going to convince people they need Christ. We're going to get a wagon, and we're going to back that wagon right into a community, and we're going to get a microphone, and we're going to start screaming that they need Jesus. Now you say, I was saved by a street preacher, Pastor Matt. Thank you. No, I understand that. I understand that if you catch somebody in a moment of crisis and they really need the Lord, it's great that they had that message in that moment. But should those be the primary modes by which we try to convince the world that Jesus loves them? That God has a hope and a future and a care for them? Or should we go another direction? Should we merely try to win people to Christ by putting on dazzling displays? Can we hope that if we can do things just gloriously enough that we can lead people to Christ. Now you may say, Pastor Matt, I was led to Christ in in quite the dazzling service. And I believe you. But should that be our primary mode by which we minister to lost and dying people? Jesus did not sit back in heaven and wait for the Father to make a display. Nor did Jesus just stick his head out the clouds and start screaming the truth. Instead, he came down to the level of where people were at. He paid a very costly price, and he dwelled among them. He became incarnate. For us to reach a lost and a dying world, we must be willing to take on flesh. We must be willing to dwell among those who need the word of God so desperately. The problem with dwelling is the cost. Dwelling costs time, money, and energy. Therefore, it is easier not to dwell and to resort to preaching the truth from any grandstand that we can find or trying to put on dazzling displays that fit within a certain time frame and budget. And I once again hearken back to a moment in time, probably at the moment of creation, where God recognized that to create human beings and give them free will to allow them to come into relationship with God, a heavy price must have to be paid. And at that moment, the Son of God was willing to say, I'll go dwell. Because we are going to show human beings that the unincarnate truth is powerless. But God loves them so much that he'll come in the flesh to meet them right where they're at. Then they'll know the love of God. That the one who is the word, the divine mind, the one who spun out the universe, the one who envisioned the Big Bang, cared so much as to come here and live as human beings lived, to teach them the way and to connect to their hearts.
A few minutes ago in the Local Missions Minute, I highlighted three programs that we're doing here, and they're designed to take on flesh. They're designed to dwell among. They're not divorced from Christ, because Christ is the answer and Christ is the way. But they also don't allow us, as church folks, to resort merely to saying, on my time and on my limited dime. Instead, the programs that I was talking about, they're costly. They're going to cost money. They're time-consuming. It's not like we're going in and getting out on a Saturday afternoon. We are choosing to make a concerted effort to dwell with people and to not just try to resort to dazzling displays in order to win them to Jesus Christ because we believe that it's the right thing to do. It's very countercultural to dwell with folks these days. It's very countercultural to stand up for a cause and invest your life and your time into that cause. But it's what God's called us to do. The people that we are going to be ministering to over the course of the next many years, they really aren't looking for truth. That's a hard concept to get our mind wrapped around, but most people aren't looking for truth. I heard it on 103.3 on the way in this morning. Most people aren't looking for truth. They're looking for what works. They're looking for what works. Here's the beautiful thing about the logos. In Jesus Christ, what works and the truth meet perfectly. And wouldn't it be great as Victory Life Church if we can bring programs that said, say, this works alongside of the truth that says Jesus Christ is the only way to make it work and lead people where God intends for them to go. We have an incarnate God, folks. Let's continue to make sure that we are an incarnate church. Let's pray. Here at Victory Life, we always close our service with a time of prayer. Our elders are going to step into the aisles in just one moment, and we take our cue from James, the fifth chapter, which says, if any among you sick, they should call for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and pray over them, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. But we also use this time, and we call it commitment time. And that means if God is speaking into your heart that you need to speak with him today before you leave this place. We want to give you that opportunity. So these altars are open today and they're open because it gives you the opportunity to say, God, I'm moving towards you. Whatever you're speaking to me and whatever you're calling me to, I'm moving towards you. It might have to do with the message today. It might have to do with just sickness or illness. It might have to do with 
somebody that you love that's going down a path that you're not real pleased about. So many things that we can pray over today. But I just encourage you today before the time is up to consider a couple of things. One is to ask the question of God in this time of prayer. God, what does my life look like right now? Is there any sense of purpose in the way that I want to convey Jesus to others? Is there any sense of direction as to how I want to convey the Lord who has saved me to other people? That's the question I want you to ask the Lord today. And perhaps if you're a little bit further along, that discussion with the Lord, maybe today you say, God, I know that there's not quite a sense of direction right now, but I want there to be. Would you speak to me? Would you speak to me and tell me what that direction should be? So today, these altars are open. Whether you have need for prayer whether you want to bypass an elder and just kneel and pray to God about what God's speaking to you. But I encourage you today, I know the message was very theological, but to ask the Lord, Lord, I've seen who you are today. Talk to me about how I can be a little bit closer to being who you are. The altars are open. Our lives around. 
cry holy today, God. Not just because you spun out the universe, but because of your humility of heart. That you came and you dwelled with each one of us. And you still desire to dwell today in the hearts and the lives of each person that you've created. Lord, you are so holy. You're so different than us. Your humility of heart and your love for people is so great. Lord, I pray that we would desire to love and serve people the way you loved and served people. I pray that we would count the cost of what it means to bring Jesus to a lost and a dying world. And that, Lord, we would be willing to stand in the gap and join you in the kingdom the way you called us to do. We thank you today for meeting with us, Lord God. We thank you today that your presence has been felt in many ways. We ask as we go from this place today, you would bless our endeavors. And Lord, this week I pray that you would show each and every one of us, in the name of Jesus, how to hold out a cup of water to those who are thirsty for the one who has grace and truth. Dismiss us now with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.